Ecclesiastes chapter number 9. Look with me in verse number 11. Solomon writes, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. I'm going to read that one again. This is our word. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you've never read or heard these verses before. Would you do that? Help me out. Yeah, I'm surprised there aren't more. This is not typically a uh, passage of Scripture. And even if we're being honest, the book of Ecclesiastes is not usually the book that really cranks our truck on a cold morning. It's, it's just not a book we stay in a lot. And I don't have time to give you all the backdrop of what kind of mind frame Solomon was in when he was writing the book of Ecclesiastes. But let me tell you this. He's writing primarily from a purely human perspective. He is writing about his recognition that apart from God's presence, God's purposes, God's power, that life is absolutely meaningless and maddening. That is the lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the end of it all, Solomon says, the whole purpose of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. In other words, God is the centering point of our lives. God is not the one we dabble in on Sundays and then get, get back to real life the rest of the week. We've got to have the Jesus-centered mind. And I want to tell you something. Everything in your culture fights against you having a Jesus-centered mind. Everything in your flesh fights against you having a Jesus-centered mind. And the closer we come to the end of the age, I will say this, I believe the noise, the white noise, the buzz, the distractions, the, the cacophony of noise that is in our culture, it's just going to increase and increase and increase. And those that are wanting to be Jesus-centered are going to have to become much more intentional about it. I believe that day is upon us. As our culture has moved so far away from having the plumb line of the gospel as, as our, our measure of who we are and how we live, those days are gone. It doesn't mean revival can't happen. It doesn't mean God can't send a third great awakening. I'm praying that he will. I'm longing for that. But I'm telling you, if something does not change, the culture, the culture cannot be redeemed. The culture 
can't be redeemed. People within the culture can be redeemed, but the world system, the culture cannot. And so as a believer, not as a pastor, but as a believer, I want to know God in the midst of all of this noise coming at us, telling us how to live, telling us what's important, telling us what we should be angry about, telling us what we should be passive about. Lord, I want a Jesus-centered mind. I've got to hear your voice. And this is what I hear the Lord saying, not only in the written word, but the Holy Spirit speaking to me and many others. He's saying, I'm calling you to quietness and stillness. Now, here's the thing about a, a guy like me. Quiet doesn't come easy. Stillness comes less easily. But this is the call of God on our lives. And to the degree that we will enter into that calling, that will be the same degree that we hear the most precious thing that a human being can ever hear. What am I talking about? The whisper of God in your ear. So that's what I want to kind of share around this morning. So go back up with me. This is going to be a teaching moment. Go back up with me into verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to highlight something that we all need to recognize about human nature and about ourselves, even as believers. We have a susceptibility to improperly trust in things we were never meant to trust in. We are susceptible to engage in misplaced trust. Solomon wrote this in ancient times. He said, I saw something under the sun. He says, as I'm living my life underneath that burning bright light in the sky, the sun, I saw something, and this is what he says, He's saying the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Now, this is why Solomon's saying it, because what he's listing there are presumptions or assumptions that most people live with. Most people are looking for a place of advantage. They're looking for a way to where they can have the title of the brightest, the smartest, the most beautiful, the most skilled, the wealthiest, the most successful, the healthiest, the most famous. And and there is something within human nature that believes I'm in this thing to win it, and if I'm going to win it, I must carve out for myself a place of advantage. I must top the person behind me. I must stay ahead of the curve. If I'm going to win it, it has to be because I am the whatever, the strongest, the greatest. What does he list? He says the swiftest. He's talking about a race. He's saying it's not always the fastest that wins the race. He says it's not always the strongest that ends up winning the war. It's not always the most shrewd. That's the capture of that word wise there. It's not always the most shrewd who carves out for herself or himself the satisfaction, the bread that satisfies. And it's not always the most intelligent person who gains the most wealth. Just take a look at Washington, D.C. right now. Those people got money, but I don't see a whole lot of wisdom up there right now. Listen, that's across the board. That is my political comment for the day. You're welcome. When we look at this, we recognize something about ourselves. We recognize we have the same susceptibility. Some of us feel great about life the more money we have. Some of us feel awesome about where we are when we are the most recognized for our achievements and our accomplishments at work. Some that are still in school days, whether it be college or whether it be high school, there is constant pressure to gain notoriety. I've still got two, one kid that's still in school, and, and we talk about school, and, and there's that same stuff that was going on 30-plus years ago when I was in school is still going on today. You still have the, the, the notable ones in the midst of the school. And it, it's unfortunate that we don't always grow out of that. And what Solomon is saying here is, Yeah, it's been my observation that those things 
are unworthy of us to trust in. It's unworthy for you to trust in your own strength, in your own beauty, in your own success, in your own money, in your own advancement. It's unworthy to assume that if you do everything right to the best of your ability, then the obligation of God is to give you this byproduct from all that you've done right. Solomon has learned that there are a lot of variables in this thing called life. And remember, Solomon was an individual who was in a conversation with God, and God said, what do you want? And Solomon said, make me wise. And God says, I'll make you the wisest. And so when he's discerning these things, he's teaching us something from God's perspective that these things that we trust in um, are not always properly arranged. There are just some things, friends, that you don't need to drive your tent stake down into. But go a little bit further. Beyond this, um, I would call it a near global assumption that a position of advantage is what we all need, there's something else. We assume that, but we ignore this. And this is where Solomon kind of um, brings us into a moment of sobriety. This is what we all ignore. And this typically is our position as we're cruising through our life. What do we ignore? Well, listen to how he sums it up. He used poetic language to talk about something here. He says, time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to everybody. Man does not know his time. And then he gives two examples from the world of the animal kingdom. He says, what about the fish that are taken in an evil net? and birds that are caught in a snare. So, just like them, the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What is he talking about? He's talking about the great equalizer. What is the great equalizer? Death. You're gonna die. It's appointed unto you once to die, and then the rest of eternity comes after that. And so when Solomon is saying, yeah, the fast and the noble and the rich and the, and the swift and the strong and the mighty, if you go to the county morgue and you put the most successful businesswoman in the entire city of Atlanta on one of those tables and her corpse is there and you take a beggar from a different part of the city and put his body right next to her body, which one of them has the advantage in the moment? Nobody. Why? Because their time has found them. More specifically, the end of time. And when we are living in the rat race of the American culture, where the volume is turned up as, as, as to level 11 now, and everything is screaming at you and agitating you, and it's politics, and it's the economy, and it's, and it's a, a clash of cultures and races and gender wars and all of this stuff that is increasing exponentially in our culture. When, the, when it's all said and done, we're a body on a table in a cold morgue and God says this, where was your trust? Where did you stake your hope for advantage? You see, this is not really happy stuff, but it's really important stuff. Because ultimately, in, and especially in Western culture, where we have so many options that say, live for me. Live for beauty, live for pleasure, live for sex, live for money, live for education, live for accomplishment, live for uh, achievement, li live for physical fitness, live for all of these things. They're just everywhere. Live for other people. Live for your children, live for your parents, live for your spouse. All of these options are just being thrust at us on, a, on an uh, assembly line belt that's going 1,000 miles per hour, and you don't have time in the normal course of things to get in a still and quiet moment and say, what about eternity? It doesn't happen on accident. 
And, and the fact of the matter is, especially in a room full of most of us would probably say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm not even talking to you primarily about being saved. I'm saying, is your mind Jesus-centered? Because this culture and this world and this generation is not conducive for us to be anchored in Jesus, not just theologically, but relationally, experientially. We ignore it. Like that fish, he, Solomon uses just so much like Jesus would do later, just the most simple things from the world of nature. You know, I'm not a fisherman. The last time I went fishing, let me tell you how non-redneck I am. I have not been fishing since 1981. That was the last time I fished. I caught nothing. I said, I don't like this. So I've never been back to the lake. I'd rather ski than fish. But the point being is a fish swimming, going about its business, doing what comes naturally, and it's just enjoying its day, probably going out to either eat or spawn or do something, and it's just cruising through, and boom, runs uh, smack into a net that somebody of a greater intelligence and a greater anticipation had laid for that, that fish, it's over. And then Solomon does the same thing. He's talking about the bird caught in a trap. There's bait in that trap. There's something that the hunter knows that the bird wants. He's called a fowler in the old King James. He's a bird hunter. And he knows what uh, every particular bird wants. He puts that bait in there. The bird, by its instinct, goes for the bait. The trap falls, and the bird's life is over. And Solomon says, it was that bird's time. It was that fish time. They didn't see it coming, and neither will you. It's the great equalizer. That's why Solomon can say, you, you can be as strong as you want, but you may not get to finish the race you think you're running. You can be as wise as you want, building up barns for more and more, but you don't know when he's going to require your soul of you in the night. And so we have all of these presumptions that this is my pathway, this is my life, and all of these distractions that keep us from asking the most meaningful questions. A lot of people, listen, I don't want to sound critical, but I, I think this whole passage is, it calls us to introspection. And when I do introspection on myself, I find things that are lacking and need to be corrected. And so I'm going to assume I'm not the only one in the room who might struggle with these, these tendencies. But friends, we have a lot of assumptions about what life's supposed to be. And if I can be so bold, some of you haven't checked in with the Lord in a long time and said, are you okay with who I am and what I'm doing? Are you... Are you good with the way I'm living? My, my marriage, my singlehood, my job, my ministry, so on and so on. Are, are you okay? Because, Lord, there's a lot of noise going, and I don't think I've heard you address it in a while. How do we hear the voice of the Lord about our lives? How do we do it? Do we presume that he's going to thunder out of the heavens like he did with so many in the Old Testament? Do we assume that? I find a different um, prescription for the voice of the Lord through my Bible. I find this call to draw near to God, and then he'll draw near to you. Yeah. I find promises that he made to Israel. He said, I'm going to guide you with my eye. Do you know what that entails? If God's going to guide us with his eye, guess what we have to be doing? Staring into his face. I, I, I find in the secret place, in the quiet place, that he loves to share his secrets with those that will seek him. People want to say, well, God, God doesn't speak anymore except through his Bible. And I think that's a terrible theology. 
terrible theology. Matter of fact, I debated with a guy this week about that very thing, that his statement was, God only and always speaks through his word. This guy was a pastor. And so I prayed for about 20 seconds, and then I felt the, the permission to re- release a little snarky comment. <laughs> he, said, he said, God only and always speaks through his word, and he doesn't speak through any other means. I said, you're a pastor, right? He said, yeah. I said, well, then who called you to preach? Because I knew the guy's name, and there was no verse in the Bible with his name that says, go preach. And so what we do is we make these big statements about what God can do, who he is, and and then we don't investigate what we're actually saying. And sometimes the way that we avoid making foolish statements like that man made is to get still and quiet and listen for his whisper. And you can't do that accidentally. You can't do that unintentionally. And so that brings us down to the next portion of these verses that we read. And this is tough, man. This is not easy, but let me tell you what my purpose is. Maybe it'll help you if I, I go ahead and expose my motivation in this. I'm afraid that as we are approaching the end of the age, Christians are falling more over the edge into the chaos of the culture and falling less on their face in the presence of the Almighty. I feel like this, and it's not true for every person, but based on my observations and dialoguing with so many other people, some leaders, some not leaders in the kingdom, what I'm seeing is the encroachment, the building, the exponentially growing chaos of the culture is moving quickly towards a tipping point. Something unusual, not good, unusually disturbing is happening in the global culture. It is a level of chaos and intensity that doesn't see, it used to ebb and flow. Now it just seems to be flowing. It doesn't seem to be drawing back and then building it. It just seems to be building. It's like a a wave that is about to crest. And I'm watching Christians unknowingly, unwittingly get sucked into that kind of that, that tide, that riptide's pulling them out of that quietness with Jesus. And they're listening more to the roar of the culture than they are to the whisper of the Savior. And what's happening is they're, 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 they're experiencing a disturbance of their peace. And they can't quite put their finger on it. But, but they're recognizing they're agitated in their soul, they're agitated in their spirit. They're finding themselves angry, frustrated, Um, hypercritical. They're getting much more in the the groove of of, uh, pontificating on politics than they are speaking the scriptures. And I'm going to have to just tell you, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for all of us. Because at the same time that all that is happening in the culture, let me tell you what I'm also sensing. I'm sensing the Lord saying, I have great and mighty things that you don't know anything about yet. And that he wants us to call upon him because he wants to release revelation, release wisdom, release illumination, release enlightenment, release power. But we are glancing at God while we're staring at the culture. And if anything, those two things need to be reversed. Glance at the culture because there's a lot of need out there that he wants to meet through you but stare at him. 
So what does it look like here in Scripture? Well, he's about to give us what I believe is probably something Solomon had actually seen. It reads a little bit like a parable, but there's no real reason to believe it's a parable because um, he's going to illustrate this tendency that you and I have to, to, to proudly forget God. And I'm not talking about the other guy. Because it's real easy to say, oh, yeah, she needs to hear this or he needs to hear. No, 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 I'm talking about man. I'm talking about you. We have a tendency to proudly forget God. This is what it looks like in this uh, statement that Solomon gives. We can forget our former helplessness. Solomon said, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. In other words, it was impacting to him. He said, there was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great sea work, uh, siege works against it. So he's moved away now from this myth of human strength, the swift, the strong, the mighty, the wealthy. That's what we all need to be, and then our life will be insulated and we will win. And Solomon's the original myth buster. He says, not so much. And now he's talking about the opposite end. He said, I once saw a really tiny city, a little village, and there was just a few people that lived in that village. And to their horror, a very powerful opposing ruler, a king, came and surrounded that city. It was overkill. The king didn't need to do this big of a show, but he came with a show of force and the power to back up that show, and he built great siege works around it. Now, let me pause here because there's another part to this story. I, although I don't believe that this is exactly what Solomon was intending for us to interpret from this passage, I think he's clearly communicating an account that happened. These things are written beforehand for our learning and our instruction. And let me tell you, you and I as Christians used to be the little city. We used to be the indefensible, paltry, doomed little city that had helplessness written on the front gate as people entered in. What am I talking about? Well, friends, we were sinners by nature. We were born into, come on, y'all don't leave me now. We were born into this world with a sin nature. And probably around 18 months old, when we got some, I don't know how old they are when they walk, probably before that, when they can walk and they can touch and they can will, the sin nature wasn't just there in its nature, it began to manifest by choices. Any of you that have raised children remember that first time when that precious little angel showed that she or he had the spirit of a savage in them. You know, our kids have been great. We were blessed and very fortunate that uh, neither one of our children have really ever given us a whole lot of trouble. But uh, Alicia, when she was about a year and a half, she went through, it lasted three weeks. That's all it took. Three weeks where she was going to do anything and everything that she could to defy mom and dad. Now listen, she's 18 months old. And although somebody would probably call defects on me, um, we believe that the Bible said that the, uh, what is it, the, 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 heart, the foolishness is bound in a heart of a child and the rod of correction drives it out. Yeah. Y'all are like, where are you going with this, man? Where are you going with it? I, listen, I'm just telling you, I won't give you too much detail, but I'm, I'm just telling you, 
it was only about three weeks, and she learned why it was not good to disobey mom and dad. But the reality is, is her precious little beautiful self, who knew nothing about the gospel, knew nothing about her guilt, knew nothing about her culpability, um, she showed that she had the, the reality of depravity in her heart. Nobody had to teach her how to disobey. It came naturally. So we are sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice, and along with that sin comes a terrible price. See, the wages of sin is death. Separation from God for all of eternity. That is the status of every single person outside of Christ. I don't care if they're sweet. I don't care if they're kind. I don't care if they're gentle. I don't care if they're as religious as the most religious person on planet Earth. Apart from Jesus Christ, they operate in a spirit of death. Aren't you glad you came this morning? We're not done yet. That's what it's like to be that little city, helpless, defenseless, because we can't rescue ourselves from our sin. We can't pretty up our act. We can't undo the bad things that we've done. We can't promise God, never again, I won't do it again. Even if we were able to live from that statement, I'll never do it again, Lord, from that statement forward, even if we actually succeeded at that, it still doesn't take away the problem of what we did before that statement, meaning all of that sin that we're still culpable for. And so we were doomed, we were damned, we were dead, we were depraved. That is the bad news that makes the good news good. What's the good news? While we were that little city, helpless and about to die, surrounded by the enemy with no ability to extract ourselves from the situation that we found ourselves in, Jesus Christ comes and brings rescue and redemption and payment. It's not only the devil that was against us, it was the wrath of God that was over us. We had no way to escape, but Jesus comes and rises up and makes the payment on the cross. He dies as the substitute. He dies as the one who would take all of God's wrath and all of the wages of sin, took it upon his body, took it within himself, fully drank the cup of the wrath of God, took everything down to the dregs, and paid the price in full so that on the cross, when he shouted out to Telestai, it is finished, he meant it, it's done, I've paid for it all. And then he sent the gospel to you. And the Holy Spirit awakened your heart to the truth of the gospel. And brought you to a crossroads where you had to say, yes, I believe him, or no, I will not. And for everybody that said yes to him, instantaneous full pardon your sin gone your record clean your standing secured your table your seat at the table the family table with abba father it is there and he has placed you in it because you're seated with christ in the heavenly places that's what jesus did for you but friends let me tell you as we walk that out do you know how easy it is to forget that to forget it we forget our former helplessness. We forget that we couldn't have done a thing to fix it. He wouldn't even let us help with it. It wasn't a 50-50 deal. It was 100-0. And the zeros, when they respond in faith, and even that is a gift. We respond in faith. He gives us 100% of what Jesus had earned while he takes 100% of what we had earned and put it on Jesus. And we forget that, and that's why we get proud. That's why we can look down on people. That's why we can discount the gifts of others because they're not the gifts that we have. 
That's why we can murmur and gossip and slander. That's why we can be indifferent and live without compassion and withhold mercy and seek opportunities for revenge. Why? It's, it's not because we are, you know, demon-possessed. It's just that we forget who we were before he made us who we are going to be. What does it look like in this passage? We'll look further in verse number 15. We, we get disconnected from our rescue. It says there was a found in that city a poor wise man. And by his wisdom, he delivered the city. They, they didn't even know who he was. It's a little city. His name's not even mentioned. And in a little city with a few people, he's known as the poor guy. And yet the poor guy had what was needed in the moment. And the Bible doesn't tell us how. It gives no details whatsoever. But it is very clear that the poor man, who also happened to be the wise man, delivered the entire city against the evil king who had surrounded it and was about to bring them to death. He did it. Nobody could take credit for it. Nobody could have seen these turn of events coming. There arose from out of nowhere this unlikely guy who possessed hidden wisdom which delivered the entire community from their coming destruction. Now, what would you think should happen to that guy? Well, let me show you what did happen. Verse 15, no one remembered the poor man. See, we can default to this proud independence. We got our rescue. By the way, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 53 describes Jesus in a way that in his day, there was nothing when you looked at Jesus in the natural that you would have said, wow. As a matter of fact, the Bible says there's no beauty in him that people would even desire him. That Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, when he walked on earth, was an average-looking guy that never would have taken your breath away. There was nothing about him where you looked on him in the natural and said, ooh, impressive, nothing. He was poor. He never owned his own home. The Bible says that he lived and died basically with the, the, the garments of clothing that was on his back. Paul would tell us that he became poor for our sake. Paul would write to the church at Philippi in chapter number two and would say that he purposely, the king of glory, took upon himself the form of a servant when he was made in the likeness of man. And he who had all authority became obedient, even to death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus was in this kenosis. He's constantly emptying himself out in order that he might give himself for the people and when he did give himself for the people he came unto his own and his own received him not despised and rejected and yet you and i have been made alive to the gospel and we've made alive been made alive to christ but i want to tell you something i promise you we are as susceptible to forget jesus as they were susceptible to forget the little man that delivered the city and we start living independently Oh, it's all good because we touch base once a week on Sunday for an hour. And yet, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it is very easy for us to make Jesus our Sunday friend. And I think that's akin to what they did here. That city's Savior was forgotten. And I think these are days, friends, where 
Jesus is not coming at us spitting fire. I don't, I don't envision the Savior furious with his bride right now. But if I can risk this, I don't think it's too much of a stretch that there are moments where he's heartbroken at the reality that his bride isn't all that interested anymore. Now, I know there's the possibility for this to come out like a spirit of condemnation. I promise you that's not it. The reality is, is if we're sick, we need to be made aware of it so that we'll want the remedy. And so we get down to these last handful of verses and it brings us to the need. Because if I sent you home now, you just leave here feeling like really bad about the way things turned out this morning. That's, that's not my heart and that's not the heart of the Lord. There is a need and it's fully within your power. You don't get to do this for anybody but yourself, but you do get to do it for yourself. What am I talking about? It's our need to recalibrate spiritually. This is a season where the Lord wants to realign or recalibrate us. And, and it involves your willingness and your honesty and your diagnostic on your own soul. You know, the con contemplatives in the church, they, they get harassed a lot by the intellectuals. And I, I promise you, I'm a Bible guy. I'm a theology guy. I love the word. I mean, that's just kind of where I am. But I realized after years of pursuing only that to the negligence of actually closing my Bible sometimes, sitting in a chair in absolute stillness and silence as I gave my mind and my heart to Jesus with no outside input. And I want to tell you something. It's the most unnatural thing for me because when I sit in stillness and silence, some little thing in my brain pops up and says, hey, you want to talk? Some memory, something I didn't, I forgot to do before I left the house. Um, maybe some little wrinkle in a relationship with somebody. And there's just these little par parts of your brain that pop up and say, can we talk now? Can we talk now? Can we talk now? Y'all are like, this man is crazy. No, it's the chatterbox. And you've got one too. Say, so I don't think I do. Well, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sat in a chair still and quiet to find out? if those little started talking to you. See, friends, we don't slow down. We don't get still. One of the reasons why I love the prayer room, and there may be some in the room that have still never been to the prayer room. The prayer room is not some legalistic responsibility. I need to go and do some prayer. Do you know what I do? When I go over there, God recalibrates my soul almost every time. It may be a daily recalibration. It may be a seasonal recalibration. But if I will go and not tell God to get it done in 15 minutes, but if I'll go and be there, just be, not do, be. The Holy Spirit takes that, that simple moment of surrender and presentation and he begins to work, he begins to massage the soul. He begins to speak. Now the prayer room's not the only place that that can happen, but hallelujah, aren't we blessed to have a place like that where we can go 24 hours a day, seven days a week and just meet with the Almighty yes. in an atmosphere of worship, contemplation, and prayer. 
So when we look at this, here's the understanding that we need to live with. Look in verse number, leave with, verse number 16. There's a remnant that will get this. I don't think everybody in the room is going to get this today, but some of you do. And it's for you. Your heart's been prepared. We prayed today that God would till up unprepared soil before this word was released. Because some of you, this is a right now word for you. And it's not being received in condemnation. You're not feeling accused. You're feeling motivated and you're feeling helped. This is for you. Solomon says this, I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So what did Solomon desire for us to learn from what he's written here? His conclusions are these. It was only the poor man's wisdom that delivered the city. It was only Jesus' love and grace and mercy and sacrifice that delivered you from your sin. And so the clear application is that we should never, ever, ever trust in human might. Not our own, not anybody else's. We should never stake our life upon what somebody can do for us or what we think we can do for ourselves. That's antithetical to the gospel. As you become, as you mature in Christianity, you don't become more self-confident, you become more God-confident, but you actually experience a growing awareness of why you should have never been confident in yourself. If your Christianity is leading to you spiritually strutting, you've believed a lie. You're walking out of falsehood because what happens is we go lower. We actually go lower in our faith. And as we go lower, that's where the oil flows. The oil always flows to the lowest spot. And you, you are met there by the grace of God. And it is, I don't walk around, you know, feeling like I'm doomed, I'm doomed. I, I walk around saying, you know what, I don't trust in myself, but hallelujah, I trust in you. You are so gloriously good. Every time I come to the end of myself, this is what I find out. There's more of myself to be brought to an end. And so we just keep moving into that. And it's a glorious transaction where the world tells you this. Keep churning ahead. Get more. Conquer more. Adapt more. uh, Advance more. And and win more. and, And build up your strength. And make sure you're telling everybody how strong you are. You can do it on Twitter. You can do it on Instagram. You can do it on Facebook if you're an old person. You can do it in these places. And this whole culture is is a bunch of isolated, chest-thumping loudmouths. Welcome to America. And the church is sticking her foot in in the shallow end of that pool. But it's a slippery slope. You'll end up over your head before you know it. Wisdom is better than might. It's better for you to be wise in the things of God than to be rich. You can be both if that's God's will for you. But which one are you living for? It's better for you to have the wisdom of God and be single than to be married in a foolish impatience. So if you're single, which one are you pursuing? It's better for us to remain a small assembly of believers who operate in humility and wisdom than it is for us to be blowing up the doors with cranking out a bunch of nothingness. It's better to sit alone in stillness and wait on the Lord to speak than it is to run your mouth in an hour of prayer, leave the prayer place, and never know if he spoke back to you. See? He's calling us to stillness and quietness. He said, that's just not my temperament, Jeff. I don't, man. It's not about our temperament. It's about our appetites. 
And the poor man's wisdom is still despised in our culture. I'm still in verse 16. And his words still aren't heeded. That's what Solomon's saying. He's saying wisdom is better than might, even though nobody in the city remembered the wise guy or the guy who was wise. Nobody remembered him. And Solomon says, that's okay if he's not acknowledged and remembered. He's still the one who rescued the city. And the application for you and for me is, though our, I mean, did you see what happened with the vice president's wife this week? That she was just verbally assassinated in the culture for teaching art at a Christian school that had, it's a Christian school that has the audacity to believe in the sanctity of marriage as between one man and one woman. And so our culture just, knives come out and just shredding her up and down. Guess what? That position is still right, even though the culture hates it. The position is right. One man, one woman, marriage. It's it's not complicated. Some of y'all are afraid to amen it. Uh, It's it's just, that's that's our culture. Well, Jeff, science says science, come on. You know, the March for Life took place this weekend. Guess what wasn't plastered all over the news? But you let another movement come, and it's on every station. Why? Listen, we have to extract our thumbs from our mouth, put up our pacifier, quit wearing diapers and being babies, and recognize the culture doesn't like Christianity. Not unless they can morph it a little bit. And so we've got to decide, which one are we letting influence our thoughts, determine the thermostat on our lives? Which one's the real us? Because if we are these people who want to hear the whisper of the Lord, let me get down to this last verse, verse 17. The secret place for wisdom. I'm just going to end here. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Our culture can be characterized as one ruler after another, one person after another saying, I want to rule the fools. Loud. Nobody's listening. Y'all realize that, right? Nobody's listening. Nobody is listening to one another. We're all just talking. When I say we, I'm talking about in America. We are a bunch of dogs barking. Politics, economists, those that are coming up with policy. And if we're not careful, it'll get in the church where everybody's got their own pet doctrine that they just want to advance. And all they're doing is tapping their foot and waiting the time for the other person to shut up about their pet doctrine so we can talk about our pet doctrine. That's not kingdom. And the only place that that gets remedied, I'm going to promise you this, because what does it say? It says, the words of the wise heard in quiet. You know what I call that? God whispers. He, he, he will actually speak directly to you. He can and does do it through his word. But there are times where I don't have my Bible in my hand, but I hear him. And he speaks, but it's never accidentally. I'm going to encourage you to do an honest evaluation of your life and heart and say, 
is there more foolish noise coming in the ear gate and the eye gate, therefore influencing my thinking, influencing my heart posture, affecting my relationships, leaving an imprint on my disposition as I go in and out my daily life? Is it more all this noise from the fools? Forgive me for that. I'm just saying what, what the scripture says. There are fools out there. And, and loud and incessant does not necessarily equal truth. The loudest and the most frequent voices, just because they're the loudest, just because they're the most frequent, doesn't mean that they're true. One of the tactics of the enemy is to hit you with so much propaganda at such a rapid and repeated clip that it starts getting normalized in your thinking. So we hear this stuff about marriage. We hear this stuff about abortion. We hear this stuff about, um, you know, all, all of these things that the church debates on. And our culture is seeking to frame up things that the Bible's already framed up. And because it's like a machine gun, it's just going off and going off and going off all the time. You're not even aware you're hearing it, but what happens is the more you expose yourself to it, it, it tends to dilute your convictions. I can remember in my lifetime, the, the idea of gay marriage in the culture, not in the church, in the culture, was, was given great pushback. And, and people had, even unredeemed people had a moral compass that said, that is not natural, that is not right. But now, that ship has sailed and the church is saying, well, let's think through this, should we? Should we? What, what happened? Propaganda incessant roaring of fools coming to speak and the church lost her stillness her all eyes on Jesus heart posture and they missed his whisper so the Lord's calling us back to a place where he has our ear again and friends nobody can do that for you you have to do it for yourself I'm gonna ask us to stand to our feet. My time's up this morning. It's the Jesus-centered mind. Don't assume it. Don't assume it. Don't assume it. If you need to, reclaim it. He'll be so happy to hear just a very simple confession. Lord, I, I've actually allowed my heart to start getting framed up by a culture that opposes you. And by the way, don't let it just be about uh, the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage issues. Those are two that I'm very passionate about. But man, it happens in a thousand different ways. So Father for your glory and for the very sake of our own soul. Teach us how to be still again. Father, crucify our antsy spirits. Break our addictions to screens. Give us hearts that long after your whisper more than anything else 
And Lord, for the remnant that's in the room that wants this, throw oil on that fire you stoked this morning. No excuses in us anymore, Lord. We have to hear you. We have to hear you, Lord. We love your voice more than we love anything else. It's not a luxury, Lord. It's our deepest need to hear the voice of our Father. And Lord, I don't want to have to get your voice secondhand from somebody else. We all want to hear from you. So Lord Jesus, we commit to center ourselves in you. Help us to know what that commitment involves. Give us the courage to turn off the news, to shut down our phones and tablets, to open our hearts in a quiet room where your presence abides. And let us wait because I know you'll begin to speak. We ask this in your name. Amen.